0: I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening.
1: I'm reading um, Mark chapter one, verses 40 to 45 in the NIV. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead he went out and began to talk freely spreading the news. As a result Jesus could no longer enter a town openly but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere.
0: Calvin's at that age where he's beginning to ask about cars. What are we gonna do? He's 16 now, he's gonna be 17 in March, and so he's looking forward to purchasing his his first vehicle. He has some vehicles in mind which, give me pause, Um, They're beautiful vehicles, but they're fast, and they won't go in two inches of snow. So I suggest that you buy a cheaper car so you can buy another car to drive around in our Chicago winters. He doesn't want to hear it. He wants uh, a Nissan 350Z, um, which he's working very hard for. God bless him. I hope that he gets there, but we'll see what happens. He asked me the other day, hey, what was your first car, Dad? And I recalled back, and it was actually a 1977 Chevy Nova. When I was in high school, a guy walked up to me, I barely knew the guy, and he walked up to me, he goes, hey, you want a car? Yeah, I want a car. He goes, if you come get it, you can have this car. So I drove with my friend over to this guy's house and there was, sure enough, a 1977 Chevy Nova that was up on cinder blocks that I needed to go to Victory Auto to get tires for so I could put it on. It had one donut on the back. All of the side panels were rusted out. It barely ran. And as I was about to drive it away, he says, oh, by the way, there's no title. I didn't know. I said, okay, I'll take care of it. Driving down the street, uh, bringing it home. So my dad comes home from work after a long, hard day working at the railroad and he sees a 1977 Chevy Nova that barely runs in his garage. Now. We had a two-car garage. Now, whoever measured how many cars could fit in this garage must have only used a Ford Escort to do the measuring. This was not a two-car garage, so nearly the entire garage was filled with this 1977, barely-running Chevy Nova. Did I mention that it was beige, okay? It was not a beautiful car, but it was my car, my first car. My dad walked up and he said, what is this? It's my hot rod. He goes, it's a piece of junk. I said, it's going to fly. It's going to fly. Did I mention it had, for all of you guy mechanics out there, it had a 250 cubic inch straight six motor in it. It was not a hot rod, okay? And I said, it's going to be a hot rod. He says, it needs so much work. I said, I know what I'm doing. I had taken a small engines class in high school by that time. I knew how to start a lawnmower, so I probably knew how to make this Nova fly. He just shook his head and let me at it. And in the period of maybe two or three days, the car no longer ran. There were parts everywhere, including the head to the engine over on this side of the garage, the one piston was pulled out over on this side of the garage and it sat in the garage for quite some time. This car badly needed restoration that I was incapable of providing. You know, just as that car needed restoration, I think that some of us need restoration. Some of us need restoration in our lives over a specific issue. Maybe we're dealing with a sin or a habit or there's a disease we're struggling with or some other illness. We are struggling to be restored in an area of our life. Relational drama. We all can relate to relational drama. There's something. Many of us have been saved by the blood of Jesus and so our restoration has been started. And even though we're believers We continue to struggle in various areas. Some of you may not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior right now, so that salvation that begins that restoration hasn't begun at all. And you're dealing with various things in your life that seem to be not only ever-present, but nearly, it's impossible to go away. You think they're never going to go away. We need to understand how Jesus restores us and how we can look to him as our restorer Otherwise, what we might be tempted to do is to either take advantage of the restoration in Christ that we already have by living a life that doesn't align with what we have um, experienced with his salvation, or we believe that our restoration's never going to happen, or it's impossible. I'll always be this way. This passage in Mark that we're going to read finishes up chapter 1. I told you you're going through Mark. We've been in chapter 1 for quite some time. Jesus has just started his ministry off with a bang. Not only has he healed uh, numerous people, cast out numerous demons, but he is in this moment, in this passage right now, going to heal a leper. So let's take a look at what it says here, because there's some things that we need to know for our own life and how we can look to Jesus for our own restoration, whether or not it be one specific area or our whole life. And so the first thing we need to know this morning is that Jesus, this seems obvious, but this is true, and nonetheless, Jesus is more than willing to restore you to wholeness. More than willing to restore you to wholeness. This is what it says. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. To understand the drama that is occurring right before us as we read this passage, we need to understand what leprosy meant In the time of Jesus, during uh, the time that this text is being written, leprosy, particularly in the Old Testament, was a constellation of skin disorders. It doesn't specifically say, like for instance today, leprosy is called Hansen's disease. It's caused by a mycobacterium that occurs in the skin. It begins to eat away at the nerves and it causes uh, damage to be done to the flesh. but in the Old Testament, it might not always be talking about Hansen's disease. It could be a whole myriad of skin disorders that were spoken about. So that's important to know as we're looking at this. There were severe implications to these infectious diseases, to the, what they call leprosy in the Old Testament. If we don't understand that, we're not gonna understand how serious this passage is. So let's look at Leviticus. This is Leviticus thirteen forty-five and 46. This is what Moses, the law of Moses, um, says about the leprous person. It says, "A leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall, uncover, he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease." Again, he is unclean. "...he shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp." Think about how serious it was for somebody to have been declared unclean due to leprosy. There were, first of all, the physical implications of the disease. Someone had to walk around, and if if it was actually leprosy as we understand it today, it was a serious disorder for which there was no cure. There was the shame of having to carry around this, the burden of this physical disease, maybe the pain that's associated with it, or maybe the constant itching, because like I said, there's multiple skin disorders that are being talked about in this passage. So there were physical implications to having leprosy. Probably worse than the physical implications a lot of the time, there were spiritual implications. It says, this one shall be unclean. That means that this person was not able to worship at the tabernacle or later worship at the temple. There was a severing of the spiritual life of this person with leprosy. So imagine being told you can't come to church, ever. And if you interact with any of your brothers or sisters at the church, you need to do it from, I don't know, six feet away. And you need to say, unclean, unclean. All the hugs that we love to give, all of the, none of that. Not only were there spiritual implications, but they were relational ones as well. They lived outside of the camp and they had to live alone. They were in constant quarantine. Not just to stay-at-home for a period of time, I'm talking their entire life, their entire life. Because if we recall, leprosy, incurable. So there were physical implications, spiritual implications, social implications, and relational implications. This explains why the leper comes to Jesus begging. It says he falls on his knees. He's begging us. Some passage and some translations even take it that the man falls to his knees and grabs Jesus around his knees. Please, Lord, if you are willing, you can heal me. It's understandable why he would feel so desperate in the face of his leprosy. His whole life was turned on end. Jesus, it says in verse 41, was indignant. Jesus was indignant. Now it's interesting what the NIV does here because most other translations say Jesus was moved to compassion. So I'm gonna give you a little side note as we're going through the scripture about what do you do with passages like this? Because I know that you've sat in Bible study before, each with your own translation. Someone reads their passage and you have something completely out of left field. You have no idea why your translation is different than the translation of the person with whom you're studying. This is what happens in this situation. Most manuscripts of the book of Mark have Jesus was moved to compassion. So there's a huge body of evidence from the original manuscripts that say Jesus was feeling compassion at the time. Yet there are a couple very old manuscripts of Mark that say Jesus was indignant there's a sort of a policy and understanding when you do criticism of textual manuscripts in biblical studies that if a reading is difficult or doesn't make sense, it's probably right. Because later scribes, as they copied the letters, as they copied the New Testament over, would say, Jesus is indignant. That can't be right. Nothing here says that he's indignant. In other areas, it says he was moved to compassion. Maybe the one who wrote this meant to write move to compassion. And so then they change it. And because move to compassion seems to fit our understanding of Jesus better, doesn't it? That that just perpetuates and continues to go. So the NIV takes a bold move here and says, we're going to go with the older manuscript, the harder reading, and we're going to allow the text to simply say what it says and let the spirit and the person interpret what it means on their own. I like to think I'm a biblical scholar. I've never translated the New Testament entirely, but I can say this. I think Jesus is indignant is correct. The reason I say that is because there are other places where Jesus was indignant and we would expect him to act in a similar way. I mean, how do we explain Jesus' anger when we first look at it? I mean, in one way, we could say, how dare this man come to me and ask me to cleanse him? Does he not know that he's a leper? Well, That doesn't seem to sound like our Jesus, does it? No. Another idea might be that maybe Jesus is angry at the lack of man's faith. If you're willing, you can heal me. It, feels, it sounds kind of wishy-washy, but if we look at what he's saying, he's not doubting Jesus's ability. He's doubting Jesus's willingness. Another way of looking at why Jesus was indignant might be that, well, Jesus was indignant at the sin that was behind this man's leprosy. He sort of generally looks at sin in the world and thinks this is such a tragedy. I'm indignant about what has happened to my beloved creation, to my beloved son right here before me, which is certainly possible, but the text doesn't say anything about that. God has acted indignant towards sin, specifically in the book of Judges, and so we might expect that to be true as well. I think there's something to that. But in the end, I think Jesus was indignant because the man doubted Jesus' willingness. Doubted Jesus' willingness. Here, Jesus had just healed, who knows how, it seems like hundreds of people. He's cast out demons from, seems like, hundreds of people. And yet, this man comes and still doubts Jesus' willingness to heal him. And it so says, Jesus, Was indignant. Listen to what it says in John chapter 11 in a similar situation that Jesus is in. He says, So the Jews said, This is during Lazarus. After Lazarus dies and he's placed in the tomb, Jesus comes back to find out that Lazarus has died. And it says, So the Jews said, See how he loved him after Jesus wept. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? So again, they're not doubting Jesus' ability. They're saying Jesus could have saved him from dying. But why didn't he? Doubted his willingness. And then Jesus deeply moved again. The same sort of idea of indignance came to the tomb and we know what happened. Lazarus, come out of there. This man had faith in Jesus' ability, but he questioned Jesus' willingness to heal him. Now, I know that there are people in this congregation, myself included, who are 100% certain that Jesus can do anything. That Jesus can heal any disease. That Jesus can raise any person from the dead. That Jesus could cast out any demon. That Jesus can do whatever Jesus wants because Jesus is our creator. And Jesus is all powerful. Where we have trouble, is we say, I don't know that Jesus can heal my disease. I don't know that Jesus is willing to cast out my demon. I don't know that Jesus is willing to intervene in my life. And we doubt Jesus' willingness to heal us, even if we don't doubt his ability. I mean, if we look at the text and we apply it to our lives, we can need to tell ourselves that Jesus is indignant (laughs) with the idea that, He's unwilling to heal us. Maybe we tell ourselves, um, maybe we have been told, you know what, you need to remain outside the camp. I'm a recovering drug addict and a felon. All of you have heard it before. Most of you. If you're not, surprised, God restored me. When God restored me, there were people in my life, when I told them that I'm being called to ministry, they said, what church is going to hire you? Not only are you the lead pastor, you're in charge of all the kids' programs, you're in charge of all this, you're responsible for everything. Who's going to hire you? Alas, their answer. You need to remain outside the camp because you're never going to fit in. You need to stay away. Maybe we say to ourselves, I'm too sinful. I hear this all the time, especially in prison when I would preach the gospel to people. You don't know the things I've done. You don't know. I'm too sinful. Jesus cannot fix me. Or maybe we carry the shame of things that we've done in the past. Yes, I know Jesus can forgive me. Yes, I know Jesus can restore me. But you have no idea how I feel about what I've done or the things that I've gone through, the things that have happened to me. Maybe the victimization. The shame is too much to bear. And this is one that I personally struggle with, I think, sometimes, and I know some of you do too, is that Jesus is uninterested. He's disinterested in our situation. You know, you know it, and, we, and I know the biblical writers say it too because they're kind of like, where are you? Are you watching what's happening right now? It feels like he's just not there. Like Jesus just is not interested in what is happening in your life from the day to day. But from this passage, we see that Jesus is interested, that he stops and heals one who is unhealable and that no one is too sinful and no one carries too much shame. My question to you this morning is how are you doubting Jesus' willingness to heal you? I know some of us are struggling with sins, constant temptations, recurring thoughts, desires to do something different, go our own way, because it's hard to trust what Jesus has for us. It's hard to believe that Jesus could heal us. That he's willing to heal us. How about others? Others? How are you doubting about how Jesus is willing to heal those around you? I was talking to someone the other day and I was suggesting that maybe this person in their life would get saved. And their answer was basically, never. Jesus will never save that person. You do not know this person. This person is too far gone. But if anyone can attest to the fact that Jesus will go to any lengths to get somebody, it's me. Jesus leaves the 99 to go after the one. Nobody is outside of the Lord's reach and his willingness to heal them when they come to him in faith. It says he reached out his hand and touched the man. He says, I am willing. And declares, be clean. The fact that Jesus touched this man is scandalous. Remember we learned in Leviticus that you can't even touch, you need to walk around. I thought it's so interesting. In the Old Testament it says you need to cover your upper lip. Walk around and say, unclean, unclean. I mean, we're covering our upper lips, aren't we? Totally revolutionized my understanding of the passage. The fact that leprosy, by the way, leprosy is transmitted through airborne droplets, okay? Now this is written in Leviticus 3,000 years ago. They had no idea about airborne droplets. They had no idea about wearing masks. Yet God declares to them when someone is leprous, cover their mouth when they talk and stay away. There's a myriad of parallels here. That's like a whole nother sermon right here, but we'll let it say what it says. He reaches out and touches the man. He says, be clean. Scandalous. This holy man, according to the Jewish understanding of leprosy, as we read in Leviticus, would never, ever allow himself to touch somebody who is sick with leprosy because, they're contagion, because they were contagious. Those people who touched a leper were unable to go to temple until they went through a whole quarantining process. Fourteen days, by the way. Another parallel. So they never would allow themselves to touch or be touched by one with leprosy. Now I want you to think about this man. His whole life, we don't know how long, maybe his own, nearly his entire life has spent severed from the community. The shame of being a leper having to wear his hair long, his torn clothing, saying, unclean, unclean, to wherever he goes, wherever he, to whomever he comes into contact with. And in a moment, this religious man, the one who his entire life, others, had said to him, stay away, says come, it touches him, be clean. The years of trauma and abuse and pain, gone in a moment. When other religious leaders had passed a sentence upon this man and said, you're unclean, stay away, Jesus passes salvation onto him. In that very moment, the leprosy is gone and all of the wounds that went with it, not just the physical disease. Jesus desires to touch your wounds, the places in your life that you have been declared unclean or where you feel unclean. So come to him in faith and trust that he is willing and desires your healing. It says, immediately the leprosy left him and he was clean. I mean, imagine what if my father came home from work the next day and in the garage, instead of this tan, rusted out garbage, was a fully restored 1977, maybe navy blue with white racing stripes down the hood. And instead of a 250 straight six, it had like, I don't know, a 396 or a 454. How did this happen? He could only say it was a miracle. There's somebody who came along and did this. It would have been a miraculous undertaking that he totally did not expect. It would have signified that somebody new came on the scene. So, know that Jesus is desirous of your restoration. This raises an important question. I'm coming to Jesus. I believe he can change me. I beg him on my knees, make me clean. Yet, for whatever reason, I continue to struggle, I continue to suffer. This disease hasn't left me, this habitual thought hasn't left me. What about then? This is what I want you to understand. This is an understand, This is what it means when Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God. I want you to think about the whole earth, because of the rebellion of Adam becoming enemy territory, and God giving over the earth to enemy territory. Then one day in the person of Jesus, one who he prophesied would come, enters on the scene and establishes something of a bulkhead, a beachhead, a place that starts... An invasion. And as Jesus moves from person to person at 2,000 years ago in Galilee, and then through us even today, this kingdom grows. He declares that which is unclean, clean. He declares that which is unsavable, saved. Yet the full ushering in of what we see will not happen until the kingdom comes at what is known as the eschaton. You know, the day of the Lord, the day we're all waiting for, the day when Jesus comes back and makes everything that which is already a reality now real to us. This is what I believe. I believe I already am healed. I believe that many of you already are healed in that there is a gap between its realization to us and its realization in heaven. So though the Lord is willing, know that the Lord wants you to be transformed. Know that the Lord in many ways has. You just don't see it. We stand in faith. We walk by faith. And when that day comes, when Jesus comes back, we realize, oh, I was actually healed way (laughs) way before I thought I was. Way before I thought I was. So hold out in hope. Hold out in faith. Second principle from this morning. Your principle or your restoration to wholeness is proof of the coming kingdom of God. Your restoration is proof of the coming kingdom of God. 43, Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Some translations say as a proof to them. It says Jesus sent him away with a stern warning. This, you've got to understand this in the Greek. This is what he says. You parents, you're totally going to get this. You pull up to somebody's house. You turn around from the front seat and you tell your kid, Better not mess around. I want you on your best behavior here today. Do you understand me? Or how about this one? Do not embarrass me. Do not embarrass me. I got that one all the time. Do Do not embarrass me. And then, you know, the cycle of life I turn around. Do not embarrass me. Anyway. It's this stern parental warning to a child. Do not tell anyone who did this to you. Do not. Makes us ask, why would Jesus say something like that? Why would he say that? He's so short. He says, see no one, speak to no one, but go to the temple. Well, why would Jesus do that? Well, part of the reason is, is that he's simply asking for the man's obedience. In the end, it kind of doesn't matter. Jesus is telling him, don't tell anyone. If I had just been restored, I think I probably would have went to the temple. But I don't know. I think we're too hard on the leper sometimes when we read this. What I think it is, more likely, is Jesus, let me say it like this. To understand the New Testament well, you need to understand the worldview of the first century Jew. The first century Jew lived in an area that was constantly in tumult between larger powers. It was constantly being invaded. It was transferred back and forth to various kingdoms. During that time, whenever something bad happened, they'd get squashed by another kingdom, whether it's not the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, someone would come in and do damage, invade and cause problems. The understanding started to develop was that every time this happens, it's because the Jews were departing from the covenant, the Old Testament covenant. So we need strict obedience. This explains why Pharisees were so stuck on the Old Testament law, because they believed if they did not follow this exactly, we're getting invaded. Something bad's gonna happen. Every time something bad happened, it's because we're not obeying God, okay? Not only that, as they were being oppressed by these invaders, this understanding came out, and this true understanding from the Old Testament, was that there would be a Messiah, one who would come, one who conquered, one who would drive out these Gentiles, these foreign invaders. And so whenever somebody stood up or whenever somebody wanted to push against the the regime that was currently inhabiting uh, the land at the time, there was this idea, is this the one? Is this the coming, conquering king who is going to drive out our enemies? Is this the one who is going to turn the world upside down and restore Israel to the promises that she was given by the Lord? The problem was, is every time this happened, someone rose up, there was a rebellion, these enemy invaders would come squash it. And so Jesus did not want there to be a misunderstanding about who he was. This is often referred to as the messianic secret. Jesus wanted to limit who, his fame in many ways because it would be misunderstood and abused. And there was a timeline by which Jesus was working in order to get through his ministry here on earth. And so he tells them, don't go tell anyone, but go to the priest, offer the uh, sacrifices that are commanded in the Old Testament as a proof to them. Because they would have known the man's situation. They would have declared him unclean in the first place. He would have been, do you ever go into a store and there's pictures of people on the wall? <laughs> like, don't pick checks from this one or this one or this one or this one. I might have been one of those, I don't know. If there were something similar in the temple, that man would be one of those pictures. He would have been forbidden to enter the temple. He would have been forbidden to touch anyone who would have entered the temple. Yet he says, go to the temple and show them Give the offering that were commanded according to Moses' law and to, and as a proof to them. The healing of this leprous man would have been tantamount to raising the dead. This is really something interesting I was studying this week. Uh, Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, talked about lepers being the living dead. It's a pretty serious declaration, the living dead. Rabbis later talked about him in a similar form. Josephus, and moreover, talked about him as corpses. I don't know how many of you watch like this Walking Dead thing on TV or whatever, the zombie apocalypse, right? These, guys, these people who are infected by some unknown virus that creates a situation in which there are zombies, right? Think of that as a leper at the time. Somebody who remained away, somebody who was foregone. There's nothing that could be done for them. Nothing. They were basically the Walking Dead. The cleansing of this leper would have been an obvious sign that something big, big, had happened. One would think after being saved from leprosy that this man would do anything Jesus told him to do, to be obedient and to go exactly do what Jesus said in his stern warning. But alas, he did not. And this teaches us something. Third point from this morning. Disobedience after restoration inhibits Jesus' ministry to others. Disobedience after our restoration inhibits Jesus' ministry to others. Verse 45, Instead, he went out. He just got told, don't do this. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came from him from everywhere. Yeah, he disobeyed, but in one sense, can you blame him? This man just walked around with leprosy his whole life, this man heals him. I don't know, it'd be like being, for me, like released from prison. What was that day like? Or maybe I had a disease that was incurable, suddenly cured. Nevertheless, whatever justification the man gave himself, his disobedience had consequences, just like our own disobedience has consequences. It says Jesus could no longer freely enter a town talked about why because if he came in they would have confused him as being the conquering king who was coming to restore israel it would have started an uprising and jesus had other plans at the time now before we're too hard on our leprous friend we need to look at ourselves it'd be easy for us to say well he should have been told what to do why did he disobey but we do this every single day We can very easily get in the way of Jesus' ministry to others through our own disobedience. You know, sometimes we behave in a way that is incongruent with our restoration. So for instance, let's say that my Chevy Nova got all restored, but when I drove down the street, it blew black smoke. The people looking said, yeah, it sure looks good, but it's not restored. There's something still wrong with it. And it might question the person who came and did the restoration. Maybe they weren't so good after all. Sometimes what we say is incongruent with our restoration and inhibits Jesus' ministry to others. I mean, same idea. What if I had a brand new, newly restored Chevy Nova and it had the worst squeaking brakes you ever heard? Some of us have squeaky brakes from from time to time. And as I drove down the street, yes, it looked beautiful. It seemed to be restored, but there was clearly from what it was sounding like, something wrong with it. There are times that our behavior, our speech, our priorities is not congruent with the restoration that Jesus has had in our lives. I don't know. Maybe uh, what we prioritize is incongruent with our restoration. Let's say uh, instead of bringing the Chevy Nova out, I locked it in the garage under a tarp all the time. I didn't tell anyone that it had even been restored. Or maybe on the day when all of my other restored car friends were supposed to get together, I don't know, on a Sunday morning in order to exalt our restorer, we instead went to a pumpkin patch or something. If you're watching this later and you're at a pumpkin patch this morning because you're not at church, I'm not talking about you specifically. (laughs) But really, what are we prioritizing in our life? We were all broke down cars that did not run. Jesus came in and restored us. He's our restorer. Yet we allow the pull of this life, our own flesh, to motivate us to disobedience. And sometimes that disobedience is not these overt acts. Sometimes it's all just right here and right here. Yet we misprioritize our life. Our words, our behaviors, our priorities speak to the value of the one who restored us, speak to how we value, the value we place on the one who restored us. And so we need to make sure that when we are interacting with people after we've been restored, that we recognize that people are watching that they're often not looking at us. They should be looking at the one who made us the way we are. So when people see me and they hear my story, the first thing I do each and every time, and I think everyone should be doing this, God did it. Jesus did it. Think about it. If you were responsible for your own restoration, what might that look like? I'd have the wrong tire on. I'd be wobbling down the street. It wouldn't run because I tried. I did everything. It didn't work. Only Jesus, our true restorer, is the one that can do it. So in conclusion, number one, let's talk about our three points. Jesus is more than willing to restore you. He wants you to be healed. Do you believe that? Two, your restoration to wholeness is proof of the coming kingdom of God. Your proof, your life is evidence to others. And three, disobedience after restoration inhibits Jesus' ministry to those people that your life is supposed to be assigned to. So get out of Jesus' way. So what happened with my Nova? Well, after I destroyed it in the garage, months later, I don't know, it might have been a year later. Where's my dad? Is my dad in here? Downstairs. He's downstairs. Uh, it was months. It was a long time. Um, it finally got towed to Victory Auto Records. The very place that I went to get tires for it, um, I got no money for it. The door might have fallen off. I don't know if you guys know the commercial. Yeah, I hear some. <laughs> Somewhere. Um, I look back on it now and I realize I was delusional. I had, I had no way, I lacked the competence, the power, the understanding, the resources, any of that to make this car what I wanted it to be. On top of all of that, when I really get honest, I just lacked the willingness. I just lacked the willingness to transform this car into what I knew it could be. Jesus is not me. Jesus is more than willing. Jesus wants to restore you when you come to him in faith. That restoration starts when we come to him and ask for his salvation. Now, many of you here are children of God. You've been saved for I don't know how long. Many of you, a long time I look around. Long time you've been walking with the Lord. But some of you have not. I don't know where you are with the Lord, but Jesus wants to heal you. And it starts with faith. You see, the sin that's in this world and in our hearts separates us from Jesus. Jesus. It creates a gulf that's between us. Yet Jesus came on our behalf and took the punishment of that sin so that gulf could be bridged. The sins that you carry with you, the ones you often don't even know about, are creating a chasm between you and God that only Jesus' death can fulfill. Now, there are people who've been in this church for a long time. Like I said, I don't know your heart. But I know it's possible to sit here for 30 years and not to have truly come to the Lord in faith. That might be you today. This opportunity to come to Jesus is for everyone, whether or not you've been here for 30 minutes or 30 years. For those of you who are saved, this might be an opportunity to recommit yourself in faith to the Lord, to ask him again to restore you and to trust in his willingness to do exactly that in some, I don't know, unknown area of your life that's between you and your God. And so, as I pray for you this morning, as we finish, I want you to take this time to get with the Lord and to ask Him, Lord, how am I not trusting You? Where am I unwilling to believe that You can restore me? Or maybe it's, Lord, I come to You in faith. I'm asking You to save me. I'm asking You to restore me here in this life and ultimately in the next. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you for your love for us and you're willing, Lord, you're willing, we trust that you are willing to make us new, to restore us to who you created us to be, Lord, imagers of who you are. We pray, Lord, in this moment that you would reveal through your spirit to each and every one of us areas of our lives that need your restoration. Lord, we ask that you tell us now We pray, Lord, that you give us the grace to trust you. We ask, Lord, that you give us the willingness to believe that you are willing to restore us. Lord, we pray that if we've not been saved, that if we've not come to you, that you would save us now based on what you did for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. We pray, Lord, that you would transform our lives, that they would be a witness and a proof to others that your kingdom